We return to the Westminster Confession, and we are through with all the exciting stuff of, of, of God's providence, of election, of union with Christ. And now we're on those things that people don't think are exciting, but except that they are. And we're all the way in chapter 22, and here the confession deals with lawful oaths and vows. A whole chapter on rightly understanding and confessing our faith regarding oaths and vows. It starts off with the first paragraph. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion... The person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserted. That's what's happening. It's solemnly calling God to witness what is being promised or or promised. I'm missing a letter there. And to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. Uh, A couple things about that. Again, you might be saying, well, there's a whole chapter in the confession about lawful oaths and vows. Well... The Westminster Divines had a high view of the role of the civil magistrate and of the Christian's duty towards it, of our of the obligations of life. Not all of them deal with political things, but the, the whole idea of corporate and civic life was something that they... In fact, in fact, it's not that it's strange that they gave a whole paragraph, chapter to it. It's strange that we probably wouldn't do so if we were to write one today. And they, it reflects their high view then of civil office and our Christian's civic duty. And they point out there are occasions that call for us to summon God to bear witness to our oaths and vows. And the, you know, the, 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 the Westminster Confession was originally given with proof texts. The divines actually didn't want to do the proof text because proof texting is an art and it can be taken wrongly, but the parliament insisted that they do so, so they put them in there. And you have to think, and it's not, you know, this proves the case or it, this gives you all the details of it, but they're very, it's a very interesting and you show they're thinking a lot about it. And here they're going to give in the proof text examples where the Bible calls for the solemnizing of oaths. And of vows. For instance, Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. And so the Bible calls for solemn oaths and vows on appropriate occasions. Now, we we do them a lot today. Uh, Most common, at least we think is most common, is weddings. It's like a big deal. Uh, to, to stand b- uh, before God and everyone you know, and usually in a church, and to solemnly vow in the name of the Lord that you will keep you, you will keep your promises in the marriage covenant. And it is a, it, so solemn is the marriage relationship that those vows are appropriate. It's very interesting. People say, you know, what are the biblical? What's the biblical way of getting marriage? Married? Well, we don't it really. It, it, there is some cultural change. Psalm 45 uh, shows, it shows you what a marriage ceremony was like. Namely, the groom's family would hold a parade through town to go to her house. She would get in their cart and they would bring her back and they'd have a wedding feast. That was the wedding, I mean. Uh, so uh, we don't want to say that the, the way that we do our Western marriage with the, the, the structure of our traditional marriage is the only biblical way but it is highly appropriate for so solemn and important a relationship as, a, as marriage that it be constrained under vows. And it should reflect, the, the Bible says, let marriage be held in honor among all. 
Hebrews 13, 4, I think. Um, and, and, but we're living in a society in which marriage is disposable. The other thing about marriage today, I, when I'm doing marital counseling, uh, particularly premarital counseling, I often will point out that this is not a personal relationship. It's a public relationship. Uh, marriage is not just between you and your wife, you and your husband. Marriage, the church has a massive investment in marriage. The society rightly has a massive investment in marriage. And so it's solemnized with the giving of vows. We think of those uh, uh, church membership. There's an event by which we're covenanting, which is an appropriate occasion whereby in the presence of God we would take vows. By the way, what I just said about marriage is why my preference, notice how I put it, my preference is weddings in the church. I'm willing to do weddings outside the church. I have done them. But there's something I think particularly right, given the nature of Christian marriage, for them to be made in, the, in a worship service, in, in the sanctuary. But I would not bind anyone's conscience to that, and I'm happy to do other ones. I'm happier when they're in the sanctuary. But... Uh, Ah, what, what's important is that we keep our vows. Church membership's a big deal, and so that is a public covenanting. Those are vows being taken. Uh, uh, baptism. When, when parents of this church bring their child uh, to present that child for baptism, you may recall there are questions asked of them that constitute a sacred vow before the Lord, and they should weigh upon the conscience. The church takes one of those itself. And we think of, particularly of oaths of office, whereby those who were assuming, well, both in society, people entering into public office, you know, swear on a Bible, that kind of thing. But then particularly in the church, for the ordained offices, there are so important is the fulfillment of, of the functions and the faithfulness of that office that we constrain the people under vows in the presence of God. Uh, is there, therefore, a good kind of swearing, as Chad Van Dixorn puts it? And the answer is yes. But didn't Jesus forbid oaths? No, he did not. Okay, well, you go, hold on. It's right there on your slide. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Well, I left out because it would have been a long quote. Uh, he's arguing against frivolous oath-taking. And, and particularly frivolous oath-taking as a way of not being truth speakers. Uh, the fact is the Bible commands oaths. God takes oaths in the Bible. You think of Hebrews 6, speaking of his covenant with Abraham, where he, took an, he bound himself by an oath. Uh, it is biblically appropriate. It shows that God, God, the Bible shows God both taking oaths and calling us to do uh, so as well. Now, since... Oaths are made in God's presence. The proper context is that of worship. That's what they're saying when they said yeah, it's associated with worship. Uh, now, what's the rationale for it? Well, here's paragraph two. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear. And therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, as in mat- here's kind of here's the rationale, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old. So, a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters that's, that's not an is it's an in such matters ought to be taken. That's the rationale. 
Well, first of all, oaths should be only be taken in God's name. Why is that? Because he is the Lord. When we are taking an oath or a vow in someone's name, we're identifying that person as the sovereign, as the Lord, as the rightful judge. And so Christians should only take oaths in the presence of God and in his name. God alone rules the conscience. And so if we swear by some other authority, we are usurping God's role. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount quote, Jesus mentions other forms of oaths, swearing by the hairs on your head or swearing by the temple or whatnot. And it's this frivolous exercise. Uh, No, if we're going to take a vow, we're to stand before God. He is the one to whom we owe our obedience. He is the judge, and we do it before him. Um, And, of course, to swear in God's name and in God's presence involves uh, heavy and holy implications. They should not be rash or irreverent. We should not rashly marry. We should not meet and get married at the wedding chapel that weekend. That is to devalue the sacred relationship that is marriage, and if you're going to vow in God's name, it is to do so rashly in an irreverent way. It should be sober and sincere. Uh, It should involve the ability to do it. And so while the confession, I think rightly, and I strongly believe, rightly urges there are times when we take vows, at the same time, Christians... We should discipline ourselves away from otherwise swearing. You know, some people they get converted before they were converted. They they used they took the name of the Lord in vain, and now instead of God, they say gosh, uh, you know, or geez. Geez is a colloquial form of Jesus. Now I'm not judging you. I'm just going. I would urge us all just to just to just to not. Do, Train ourselves. I'm a guy who was converted at 30. I cussed like a sailor before then, or in my case, a soldier. Uh, and, and a lot of that was the grace of God in my life, but then there was a training, and I, 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 I often will hear Christians kind of tone down, taking the Lord, and I'm just like, we should just get out of the business of vainly swearing and discipline ourselves. When we're going to swear... When we're going to make an oath, it's a solemn oath. It's a solemn, we're swearing solemnly in the presence of God in a holy manner. Uh, But the Bible does teach that we should use oaths in appropriate ways to solemnitize promises. This is 1 Kings 8, 31 to 32. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, this is actually a prayer to God. This is Solomon praying This is the prayer of dedication, one of the lines in the prayer of dedication of Solomon's temple. That's what this is. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants. And so he sees it as part of godly piety on those special occasions. Now, the one he envisions is where there's been a breach of a relationship where there needs to be structure I often say in, in many situations that forgiveness is something that's a Christian's duty, but trust is earned, <laughs> and, or, or it's regained. We don't just give trust. And so there's an example where on proper occasions, and he's asking God to hear it and then to judge, in fact, to judge those who break their vows. Uh, Next two come from the restoration of Jerusalem. One's Nehemiah. 
And it's in, the, it's in Nehemiah 13. Uh, both Ezra and Nehemiah uh, get very upset, rightly so, when the restoration community, community starts practicing uh, interreligion marriage. <laughs> They're taking pagan daughters and, and giving their sons to pagan wives, uh, their daughters to pagan husbands. And uh, go ahead and read Nehemiah and Ezra. To say that they're highly exercised about this is an understatement. They blow a gasket over this. And part of their restoring the community is they have the, the men solemnly vow before the Lord to put an end to this practice. So Nehemiah 13.25, I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters for their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So there's an example, even in an irregular way, of... This is the ecclesiastical authority in this case, which is also the civil authority. Nehemiah is the governor as well, uh, who is exercising authority by calling the people to take a proper vow. Ezra arose and arose and made. Oh, this is different. This is Ezra's consecration of the priests. He arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. In fact, some of the high water marks of the Old Testament. Uh, or you think of when, when uh, uh, Joshua gathered Israel at Shechem and they made a covenant with the Lord. Hezekiah recommitted the people. They made a covenant with the Lord. Josiah did that. The people stood before the Lord and solemnly made holy vows that they would keep the Lord's ways. And so this is the rationale for how we think about it. Well, let's get into some of the details a little bit. Paragraphs three and four. Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avow to nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is just and good and, good and just, and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able and resolved to perform. Paragraph 4. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation, it cannot oblige the sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's hurt, his own hurt. Nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. Well, that's a, a packed statement. Let's unpack it a little bit. Uh, we are to vow things that are true and good. They're only to be, we're not to use vows for false purposes or for evil purposes. Uh, Jeremiah 4.2, If you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. And so he says we are to vow, we're to publicly commit ourselves to the truth of the gospel, to, to the way of the Lord. And that's the kind of vow taking we make. Uh, to swear or, or vow towards evil is to invoke God's wrath upon yourself. We must also be able, by God's grace, to do what is vowed. Van Dixhorn says, we should vow only something that we should do, that we can do, and that we plan to do. I use the example of Abraham's servant in, in, in uh, Genesis 24. Remember, Abraham only wants Isaac to marry from his covenant lineage back in Haran. And so he sends his servant. He makes him take an oath before he goes. And there's actually some dialogue. It's verses 2 to 9. 
Uh, let me make sure I can do this. Uh, is this feasible? And finally, when they have it all worked out, the, the servant understands what Abraham wants. He's going to trust. Now, he can't manufacture it. He's going to trust God for it. And that's a great, the whole episode is a great episode. Remember, he prays and the Lord answers his prayers. Uh, but that's an example of a man making sure it's, it's godly, it's right, and it is with God's blessing attainable. Uh, some years ago, I went to a wedding in Colombia. Uh, a minister friend of mine's daughter was getting married. And, uh, and, the, and the minister was, a, it was an ARP church. He was an ARP minister. So he was part of the ceremony. And it was very moving uh, when, he, uh, when, he, when he prayed for his, their one daughter. And she was a wonderful godly girl. And they loved her with all their heart. And she's getting married. And the husband prays, Father, 24 years ago, or how many years it was, her mother, her, her mother and I stood at this very spot in this same church. And we vowed at her baptism to raise her in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. By your grace, those vows have been kept. Now, Father, as our daughter stands at this same spot, and she and her groom her, her, take vows, may they be able to look back years from now. And be able to say that they will be kept. You know, one of the reasons why we have low expectations in our society is because we think, we think only in terms of what is possible for our sinful selves. But what is possible for Christians is what God's grace will enable us to do. So when there's things that God has called us to do, I think not just marriage, but certainly marriage, uh, we are to resolve them and to pursue them with full and holy intent, relying on the power of God to do it. That was just such a, a neat moment in that wedding uh, because it was right. It was true. It was appropriate. It was, it was great. Um, so uh, uh, must here's a question. Must a lawful oath be made? Now, here is one of the differences between the British version of the Westminster Standards and the American version of the Westminster Standards. There are... In fact, we're going to, all the differences occur in these latter chapters, and this is the first of them. Because the original Westminster Confession, paragraph three, concludes with these words, yet it is a sin to refuse an oath, touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority. So the Westminster Divines argue that not only is it proper to take vows, but when the proper authority calls you to take a vow, For something that is good and right, you must do so. You think of military service, for instance. And the divines taught that it is a sin not to take that vow when it is your duty. And I I think it probably reflects uh, differences in political outlook, among other things. I think the American version is more biblically sound because I can't... The footnoting is sparse there. There's nothing on that footnote, really. Um, uh, in the in the confession, I, I don't think that we can find a biblical instance where you are sinning if, in a matter of conscience, you don't do it. If Abraham's servant had said, you know, for for whatever, now he'd get fired. I mean, if you're a conscientious objector, you might go to jail. I mean, or whatever. That, that's another matter. The right of the of the state to punish you for not to taking a duty is another matter. The question is, is it a sin? And I, I'm, uh, surprise, surprise, I stand with the Americans that I think that it was wise to have that removed from uh, the confession. Uh, 
The other thing, as I read it, there's, we're not to play legalese with it. There's not to be equivocation in fulfilling oaths and vows. And it's a sign of our times. And One of the reasons why this whole topic is so important is because we live in a society in which people don't even believe there is truth. Partly because we've been so trained by loopholes. And so contracts, which are covenants, which are vows, are designed so that you can break them. And, and there's a whole profession. Where's Bobby Mann? Uh, where's our lawyers here tonight? So a whole pro- Now, lawyers do other good things other than design covenant-breaking equivocations. But in our society today, they do that. Not, not necessarily our lawyers. But, uh, but we're living in a time. It's not the lawyer's fault. It's the spirit of our time where, no, we, we should speak in plain language. We should make covenants clearly. And then the plain sense, that which is understood, we're to be bound by it. We're not to equivocate. We're not to, uh, to design loopholes. When we make vows, we do them plainly in the agreed-upon sense, and then we do not equivocate upon them. That is the only godly way. I have a high appreciation for Christian lawyers, by the way. Uh, Christians, therefore, are to be vow keepers. Isn't it interesting, you know, years ago, what, 20 years ago now, when Chuck Colson started his nationwide Christians' men's group, it was called the Promise Keepers. And that, I think, was well judged because one of the things that ought to mark Christians and by which we will just necessarily be in great contrast to the non-Christian world around us is that we keep our promises. And they particularly, the kinds of promises they had in mind were solemn oaths and vows. And so here's the last three paragraphs. A vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with like religious care and to be performed with like faithfulness. They're solemn out. We're to do them as an act of worship. We're to stand before God in full sobriety, in a clear conscience. And then when we have done so, we, by the grace of God, we are to fulfill them. There is to be an expectation among the, in the church that vows will be kept. There is to be an expectation in our, in our own hearts and minds. Our attitude is not, well, you know, if I don't like it, I can just get out of it. Uh, no, no, we're to, we're, the, the church, the Christian community, is to have a, a, an outlook where those things that we vowed, we are to perform with faithfulness. It is not to be made to any creature but to God alone, that it may be accepted. It is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for obtaining what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so long and so far as they may fitly conduce thereunto. And then lastly, no man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would, or what would hinder any duty therein commanded or which is not in his own power or for the performance of which he has no promise of ability for God. And you can see where they're going when they conclude it this way. In which respects, popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. That's strong language. Well, let's look through, work through the whole thing. This will be the I think the last slide. 
The taking of vows recognizes the importance of our relational performance, our relational faithfulness, our civic duty. These things are of the highest importance. You and I are living in an evangelical culture where the word duty is said to be legalistic. Now, it can be legalistic. I was raised in a military home, and there was no higher ideal than duty. You know, the highest praise I could ever receive from my father was, well done, you have done your duty. That's not saying, oh, oh you know, it's some legalistic thing. No, no, that's like the highest, to do your duty. And we're living in a church culture where the idea of, of being dutiful, of being faithful, what, what is duty? Duty is an obligation which I inwardly embrace because of, of, because of my love for what it represents, or, or for the God, the family, that's an expression of my love and my, my sense of obligation to my family. It's my love to God, my love to the church. Duty is a high thing. And we should be a people, rightly spoken, of, of duty. And so the taking of vows recognizes it really matters whether ministers teach sound doctrine. So let's have them stand before the church and take a vow. In a church culture that, you know, expects them to keep it. And yes, we'll be unhappy if they don't. Now, you can't be unhappy about anything today. It's, you're being legalistic if, you, if there's any sanction of any kind. But that, the reason for that attitude is because we recognize that, that those offices are important, that the performance of those duties are vital, and the thing that's affected is precious. The same is true of marital vows. They are to be we, when we make those vows, we are to keep them. And the church should expect that it would be so. Uh, and we realize that given the infirmity of our nature, that we should, uh, we should, we take vows so as to bind ourselves to faithfulness. And as such, we should keep our vows even when it costs us. Even when the keeping of our vows involves personal difficulty or loss, simply because we vowed it before the Lord. Let me give examples. Uh, you made your parents and you made baptismal vows. And for you really to keep those vows, to lead that, set that godly example, and to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it may mean that you don't get to, you don't get to, you, you, in your case, you can't take that promotion in Cleveland. You know, all. Bad promotions involve Ohio, you know. But uh, the uh, and, and and you're going to suffer loss, and your non-Christian buddy is going to be CEO, and you're never going to be CEO because you vowed in the church before God and His people that you were going to be a faithful set of parents, and so you can't have the lifestyle that you wanted. Well, that's right. And, and when you find yourself tempted to not be a faithful parent or to compromise your family's integrity, moving someplace where you have no idea where they're going to go to church, a very common thing, you should say, you know what? I made a vow. I stood up in the church and I made a vow as this child's parent. And even though it may cost me, I am to keep that vow. My father, uh, who was not a Christian until the very end of his life, but uh, at a key point in his military career, he was uh, offered a job in England that would have guaranteed making general, guaranteed it, 
uh, but it would have required me to go to an English boarding school. In fact, I would have gone to Eton. With, I would have been pals with Prince Andrew. Yuck. We're the same age. We're born the same year. And my father, God bless him, said, I will not send my middle school-aged boys to an English boarding school. And, well, if you don't, you may not make general. My children are more important to me than my career. God bless that man for making that decision about my life. And he wasn't even a Christian, but Christian parents who make vows about their spiritual commitment to their children are to keep those vows, even if it means your family rejects you. you you Ministers, go back to ministers. Uh, You vow you're you're going to teach sound doctrine, and you may very well find yourself in a church. It may be in our denomination where... If you do that, you're going to be run out of town. I myself have been in a a pulpit situation where I was reviled for speaking the truth of God's word, and I was aware that I was being reviled. There was something, Jeremiah, I don't don't want to be too dramatic about it, but it 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 was a blessing. But there's that temptation. Well, if I just tone it down, one of my favorite comments made, it was not here was every Sunday you mentioned sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. You are killing this church. <laughs> that was said to me by an elder. Um, but you see, I, I vowed. It, I wasn't even thinking of my ordination vows. I was thinking about just my integrity as a minister. But I did make those vows. And I don't have the right, and I need to know, well, I'm sorry, I'm not able to fudge on the doctrinal commitments of my teaching, whether you run me out of town or not, because I have solemnly vowed before the Lord. And that's, that's, that's biblical piety. Now, the same thing does come into marriage. There are biblical grounds for marriage. One, the main one is crystal clear, which is adultery. You do not have to get divorced if your spouse commits adultery. But in Matthew 19, when Jesus says, uh, there will be no divorce except in the case of adultery. That is an exception. When the Lord Jesus uses the word except, we have found an exception. And then 1 Corinthians 7, it's not supposed to be a five-lane highway of, of abandonment, but there are those grounds. If you do not have biblical grounds for marriage, the right thing for you to do is to stay in your marriage. And you may say to me, but I'm unhappy. That's why you took those vows. You, you took those vows for a reason. And let's keep them. I, I was talking to, uh, some years ago, a woman in our church who's, who's with the Lord now, and she told me her story, that she had uh, gotten married right before World War II. This was probably an unwise wedding. It was like, you know, December 20th, 1941, and he was listening in the Navy. So he goes into the Navy, and, and she doesn't hear from him, you know. For all these years. And he, his, his destroyer in the Pacific is struck by a torpedo. He is thrown across the ship and he has a massive head injury. His head hits one of those. You ever been on a Navy ship? That's steel. And that's, that's not play steel on a Navy ship. That's like steel steel. And he hits one and, and he suffers lots of mental problems from that. So the war is over. He doesn't come home. And so she says, um, uh, uh, my husband didn't come home for the war, so she tracks him down. And he's a different person. And he, he has some memory issues, although he does remember her. And he's 
because of the difficulty, he'd become an alcoholic, and he was leading a dissolute life in California, if not Ohio, California. And uh, so she contacts him, and she actually calls him in 1946, so that wasn't cell phone, you know, and says, greetings from your wife in South Carolina. Uh, Please come home. She hasn't seen him in five years. That may not be technically true, but it's been two or three years. And he's like, no, 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 no. I, uh, uh, I, look, I, 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 that was past. We, I'm not married to you. She said, no, you are married to you. Well, the long and the short of it was, he finally, and she said, I am your wife. I will be here. I expect you to come home. I'm praying that you will come home because you are my husband. And so he does. And it's not good. And he's not a believer, and he's had a head injury, and he's handling it badly. And then the long story is that over the years, he was converted. Now, this is not missionary dating. This is the one you're already married to. So uh, I don't know if she had been converted afterwards. I don't think so. But but she bore testimony that she kept her vow. And God bless it. We are not a church culture today where people say, you know, uh, my wife is extremely difficult, and I'm fed up with her, but I vowed, therefore I was sticking out. But that's, that's Christianity. And so uh, you can be forgiven for not doing that, and we do have forgiveness for all of these things. Our generation greatly needs Christians whose piety is this way, and, and ministers who say, you know, I realize I, I have a dear friend, you do too, many of you, who just resigned from his pulpit because he could not accept the demands of the sessions of his church with respect to his insistence on biblical truth and practice. And, and, and he has been through a very difficult time, a very unpleasant time, but he, he took ordination vows. He is not at liberty to do otherwise. Uh, Christian parents, we keep those vows. Public, wouldn't it be great if public officials did what was right for the country, even if it was going to cost them the next election? I mean, I'm not here to talk politics, but it's obvious that one of the big things going on in every party, left and right, is the compromising of the very things they vowed because what they are really committed to is re-election and the continued enjoyment of the perks of office. Our generation needs Christ. It needs the gospel. It needs a loving witness. But it also needs that the example of Christians who are promise keepers, who are vow keepers. And so we're to, we're to keep our vows. We're to keep our promises. And you go, how can I do that? Because God has kept his promises to you. He's going to be faithful to you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And you go, well, look, if I keep this promise, I'm going to suffer. And God has promised to you about, your, about that suffering. And he keeps all his promises. You can keep yours. And we're to be that kind of people. And uh, that is the Westminster Assemblies, I think, very deeply biblical take on the whole topic as it is constrained by the issue of vows and, and oaths. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to speak on this topic tonight. I thank you for the wisdom of those men and the biblical background for what they said. Uh, Father, I pray, Father, that we would think about how this applies to us, that uh, we, would, uh, we would commit ourselves to public relationships and public duties in the home, in the church, in the state. 
and that we would uh, invoke only you. Lord, help us to repent of frivolous swearing, even a Christianized downplaying of curse words. Uh, But Father, instead, let us carefully take vows on those few occasions when they are warranted. And then, Father, by your grace, let us be able to say these vows have been kept. And we know, Father, that you've kept all of your promises. Help us to glorify you in this way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.